Hello and welcome to Prairie Public's Legislative Review. I'm Dave Thompson. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on the program is the Senate Minority Leader, Senator Kathy Hogan of Fargo. Senator, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's talk about your new role as, as a minority leader, and unfortunately, there's only four of you. Being minority leader is a, a real privilege. Even though there are only four of us, we have a lot of opportunity to interact with leadership on making policy decisions. And I have to say that I have appreciated the majority's flexibility when we need help. Because we're not able to cover all committees. And so the chairs of the committees where we don't have a member have been very helpful. So they're willing to you know, let you know what's going on or maybe have you invite somebody from outside to they, be an They observer? are totally open to that kind of activity. And we have some people watching those committees and when there are issues then we can talk about them with the chairs or other committee members. So it's been a, a challenge, many new things when we don't have enough minority to cover every committee. But it's also been very collaborative. But as a minority leader then you have to sit on committees too. So. I am sitting on two committees. And they are? Human Services and Agriculture. Interesting. That, that's an interesting mix. Well, you know, the history of me and agriculture. I was placed on agriculture um, it, when I was in the House as punishment for not voting the right way on ledge management. And so I was placed on a committee that people thought, as the most urban legislator in the state, that I wouldn't like. And I fell in love with it. <laughs> and I've stayed on it since. So you have no problem being on agriculture? I love being on agriculture. Well, one thing that we talked about coming into the session, I think there was a lot of concern about workforce development, and one part of that is child care. I've heard more about child care from both parties, from both chambers. Where are we at in terms of coming up with some kind of plan for child care going forward, knowing that the fact that that's, that's one thing that is possibly hindering uh, workforce development in North Dakota? Child care is, I think, one of the biggest workforce challenges. And I think everyone agrees on the basic assumption. Finding solutions is a little bit harder. The governor put in 73 million in new enhanced child care proposals, but many of those programs were just replacements for COVID dollars, so that we'd started programs during COVID, and it was replacement dollars. The Democrats had five bills with a comprehensive plan with very different approaches to how to solve the child care issue. So can you talk about some of those approaches? Sure. One of the approaches we had on the floor today, it was a child care tax credit. Because oftentimes we talk about low-income families needing child care assistance. But middle-class families are really sometimes paying 30 to 40% of their income in child care. And so we had a bill um, to allow a child care tax credit. And it was interesting because it came out of committee today, do not pass, because they assumed that it was in the governor's package and the governor's package did not have anything on child care tax credits. So we flipped a vote today and that bill will go on to appropriations and be considered by the appropriations with all of the other five bills. I need to stop you right there, just so people understand, flipping a vote is not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's a very unusual thing to do, although in this session I've seen more votes flipped than usual. Yeah, there have been a number of things. A, that, a number you know, of things. Thinking about the insulin bill came out with a do not pass 4-2, and it got flipped, and now that's an appropriations. Now that's an appropriations. 
And flipping a bill means that they recommend one thing and we vote a different way. And so it's unusual, but one, one of the unique things about this session is the number of flipped bills we have. Well, you talked about the child care tax credit. What are some of the other approaches that you're the looking second, at? The second major one is to increase the payment for child care assistance, which is the federal program that helps low-income families. We're going to try to simplify that program and increase the reimbursement rates, which just helps providers and families. The second one, the third one that's really important is we want to offer direct payments to licensed child care for simply being open. Stabilization grants. Stabilization grants started during COVID and that's what kept our facilities open during COVID. But we want to operationalize, set the policies and establish this as an ongoing way for the state to support workforce through childcare. Yeah, there's been, a, th that's one of the big issues is people want childcare, people want to go back to work, but they can't find it. They can't find it. And we're losing childcare. Right now, the COVID funding is going away and the number of facilities that are closing right now terrifies me because I think we could lose those facilities over the next six months. I suspect we could lose 20% of them. Is there, so you're hoping that maybe what's going through the legislature right now might give people some hope to stay open? Stay open, stay open. And, and the childcare providers have been wonderful to work with because some of them have more childcare assistance providers. Everyone likes budget stabilization, childcare stabilization grants. Are there other approaches that are out there? Then, then we're doing some other things. The other thing right now, when a person applies to be a childcare worker, they have to get fingerprinted because that's a federal requirement. For some facilities, sometimes it takes three to four weeks. Well, if you have a person coming in for a 12 or $13 an hour job, they um, can't wait two to three weeks to get their fingerprint. So we have to address the crisis in fingerprinting. And there's a bill to make that better. How? The, the fun thing about that is right now, just finding a place to get fingerprinted is hard. And so we're going to set up 21 sites all over the state and so that somebody can get in and there's standards that they have to be available within two to three days. And then that fingerprint hopefully will not have to be mailed to two to three people like it currently is, but actually directly electronically sent into BCI for, for testing. So you can find out if there's anything in their background. Within, and the goal is to have it done within th a three to five days. Minnesota and South Dakota both do it in less than five days now. Yeah, interesting, there was a story out of Minnesota that Moorhead providers are having trouble with fingerprinting because they have to send it to Fergus Falls or, yeah. or to Perm or something like yeah. that. And, and, but generally, Minnesota is much faster than we are. And so that will help the workforce issue. So if someone comes to work and they can get a, a background check in five days, then they could start work. Now, childcare has always been one of those interesting issues. People know that, that it really is an issue, but there had been some resistance to putting state money into it. But is the resistance, is that crumbling now? The resistance, now childcare is seen as a workforce issue. And because every, almost every chamber of commerce and every economic development um, initiative says we have to have workforce first. It has changed significantly in 10 years. Now, have you been in touch with the workforce committees and what they're doing? Uh, child care is a big issue. What are the other big issues in terms of workforce? I think in terms of workforce, the real issue is 
we don't have enough young people in this state to fill all our positions, so we have this huge dilemma. We have to import workers. And what are the things that will import workers? I think today we had a bill about allowing military to change their residency to North Dakota, and that will inspire them perhaps to stay here after their military time. And so I think we're looking at how do we first bring people in and how do we help them stay? And of course, you've got the Matherin Bill, which which talks about immigration. You know, immigration, and there there are two separate bills in order to help workforce. Because Senator Matherin has said we have to look outside, not only the borders of North Dakota but the borders of the United States. Absolutely, and I think the immigration, the place where we find the most support for the immigration bill, is by farmers and in the egg because they have the H two A or B visas, and they're used to having people come in from other countries to work. And really, the, the nursing homes, the hospitals are hiring many foreign nurses, and they have whole immigration processes. If we could do a better job managing that immigration process, we could really, I think, bring people to work here. So when we talked about workforce being an overreaching issue, it really is. It is. takes a lot of work. There's a lot of moving parts. and. Things are starting to come together a little bit. Well, and it's interesting. On every bill we hear in other committees, we have to ask the question, will this bill impact workforce? So every committee, did you know that was going on? Yeah, so at the end yeah. of every hearing, they say, is this a workforce issue? And we mark it yes or no. And so all the bills are being tracked as their impact on workforce, at least in the Senate. And so we're really intentionally trying to think about workforce first. Now, that's, that is extremely interesting to me yeah. because, again, you're putting your money where your mouth is yeah. on that you, mm -hmm. because you're, you want to make sure that these things fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, perhaps. Well, and, and workforces, east and west, urban, rural, it, 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 there are no internal boundaries. It affects every single place in the state. Well, I have to go back to you. You said you fell in love with an agriculture committee. I did. So I, I have to ask you about one of the other over, could be an overriding issue, this carve-out of the state's corporate farming law that the governor is pushing and, and some people are pushing to get animal agriculture back in North Dakota. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm generally opposed to, to corporate farming, particularly large corporate farming from out of states and, and out of country because so much of our agricultural processing of, is controlled by the Chinese. And I'm opposed to that kind of infrastructure. I think one of the things we learned in during COVID was we had a number of grants to expand our local meat processing operations. And those have been very, very successful. Most of that expansion then became institutionalized and, and we've got it embedded in our structure. We had a bill this week about making livestock friendly counties. And with the livestock-friendly county, it then encourages the county to look at how would they like to manage um, livestock, and not just the, the raising of the cattle, but also the processing. And if it comes from the bottom up instead of from the top down, I think we can find solutions to have all the things we need for agriculture in an environmentally safe way that's friendly to communities. So grassroots efforts. It's really yeah. from the bottom up. And so I think, and I think the corporate farming bill, philosophically I'm opposed. I know they're working hard at it though. 
and and we want to maintain our primary objective of family farms and so perhaps we're tweaking i was going to say you there might be some room there point. is room for negotiation on this at this point in time another thing that's that's out there is the governor's big income tax proposal to go to a flat tax that the details are still being worked out the way i understand it 1.5 percent versus to two percent not quite as expensive um what is your uh, perspective on that flat taxes are regressive taxes they're not a pay paid for by your ability to pay a tax and we have already regressive taxes because we have a high sales tax i think this move to a flat income tax really benefits rich people significantly more than it does poor people or middle class families. And so philosophically, I'm opposed to a flat tax. Well, now what about property taxes? Because that, that's the big thing people complain about is property taxes. Absolutely, it's the number one. And most people don't think about their sales tax because you pay it two cents at a time or 12 cents at a time. And so we don't notice where we get our property tax bill and we see the bill. That's the piece that's different. But I think sales tax, people don't realize how much we're paying in sales tax. Um, I think the flat tax, the income tax, property tax issue was homestead tax credit. Did you see that bill we passed? Mm -hmm. The homestead tax credit is, I think, the best way to help low and moderate income families pay their property tax bill. And I think there's strong support, bipartisan support in both houses to make that one of the major issues. And then we have to fully fund education and other services at the local level. And that's, there are efforts to do that at this point. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the human services, when, when they went to the, the state taking over the zones, that helped a lot. It did. And then our education funding has gone up from the days when I remember it was like 50%. 50%. And we're at near 80% now. But, but we still have problems with transportation funding, special ed funding. We have to look at the whole. And um, as long as the state has adequate funds, I think we need to use them. Local government's the heart of most government. And we really need a stronger partnership between state and local governments. Again, it's not an easy fix. It might be you know, a fix that might, might uh, come out over time, but you can't just snap your fingers and say, this is what we're gonna do. No, no, and, and I'm, I've been concerned about the lack of local control, efforts to limit local control. And philosophically, historically, the Republicans have been very strong local control advocates, but there's been a shift in that to the state deciding every, everything. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, I think it's a general distrust of government whether it's state, local, or federal, but the things that on the library boards and telling school boards the things they can't and can do, I think local control much more accurately reflects the values of that community. And so I don't think we need as much micromanagement as we're currently doing. I need to uh, switch subjects again, and that this goes to uh, the whole idea of changing the buckets, this, this streams bill, oh, yes. and this is probably the most complicated bill out of the session about how do you spend legacy earnings. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, I think, I think the thing that we need to separate is there the in-state investment with legacy-born money. I think we have to remember that first, our first priority is to maintain the body of, of the legacy fund. And there have been some efforts to kind of take that away, and I'm strongly supportive of maintaining the body of the legacy fund. Now, how we use the buckets, whether it's the, the SIF fund or the budget stabilization fund, we have so many buckets that we sometimes don't even know what, how much money we have. <laughs> and keeping track of that, we need to simplify the buckets and, and make them more strategic. You know, I know they're moving one bucket from the property tax to the prairie dog bill property tax relief bill. But, and most, both of those really interact with local governments. And I think that's a, an example of how you're pitting different groups against each other at the local level. And part of this new streams bill or bucket bill, whatever you want to call it, there is now investment in research in the yes. university system. That is the proposal, whether or not it's going to survive till the end of the session. You know, we're, we're pretty early in this in the streams Very. bill. But what do you think about that? I love the idea of research. I think research is, is critical for all of our futures, whether it's ag research or economic development research or energy research. We need to be a research-based state. And we have excellent universities. And, and I think we sometimes don't use them as effectively as we could. I think that point was made in the hearing by the, the two, quote, research universities, and also by the other universities that say, hey, they're the research universities, we're doing research too. They are, and, and so many people are doing, even career tech now is doing research, and so we're seeing it in so many places. And I think being recognized as a research-rich state would bring people to live here. So again, workforce we come to workforce, <laughs> workforce development. So that, that's, that's the point I, I think we're both trying to make is how many things are intertwined here. They are, they are. And sometimes we often talk in committee about unintended consequences. We start tinkering with something that we think we know what we're doing and it ripples over here. And so the, those unintended consequences can really be dangerous. Since you're on human services, <laughs> I have been dying to ask this question. And I just am trying to get my hand around you know, the idea about what happens in terms of behavioral health and you know, moving it to communities like Dickinson, Williston, et cetera, mm -hmm. while still keeping a state hospital in Jamestown. That has become a lot more complicated the way I see it. I think, I think it's not an either or, it's a both and. Mm -hmm. I think we need a state hospital and the debate we had today was what should that role be? But, but the exciting thing with our rollout of expanded behavioral health is that we're looking at adding inpatient units with the private providers in both Dickinson and Williston. So we're trying to build the infrastructure at the local level so that the state public institution is only used for the most severe situations. And so you have to do both simultaneously because right now we have so much more demand than we have resources. And even if we had all the money in the world, I don't think we could recruit the staff to actually operationalize it because in some ways we, we had grants out, RFPs out, that people never applied for because they couldn't hire staff. So sometimes now it's not money. It goes right back to workforce. Workforce and, again. But yeah. yeah. And behavioral health, the real thing that helped was telehealth. 
the fact that we have psychiatrists from all over the United States working in North Dakota now. But things are looking up since the Schulte report, which I think mm -hmm. dates back to the mid-20-teens. Yep. And they talked about the need for it. Yep. And also talked about the need for a new state hospital. And one thing that did surprise me is in the governor's budget, he put $10 million for a study about what the state hospital should look like. And I, that, I thought that was interesting. Well, we, we tried to do it in the acute psychiatric committee this year to frame that out. And there were so many ideas that we really felt like we need a focused kind of uh, architectural plan like we did with the medical school, where we, we really had a, a group of 15 people working in depth for a time and looking at three alternatives for us to consider. And we're going to use the medical school model practice to design the new state hospital. And that medical school is marvelous. It's marvelous, it's marvelous and, and we had three levels, you know, just remodel the old or build something in between or build a state of the art. And we chose to build a state of the art which will last us for 50, 50 years. And so we're going to do that same model with the state hospital. There's a, another issue I need to get into. It's, it's a little off topic, but about state employees and benefits. Now, this whole thing about defined benefit plan or defined contribution plan for retirement, mm -hmm. that seems to be evolving, but evolving slowly to me. It's, I'm not on any of those committees, so I'm not really up to date, but I think that's critical if we're going to retain any public sector workforce. If we don't have defined benefits, the turnover it will be every three years, and it often takes three years to learn a job. And so I think if we want to stabilize both, both the local governments and state governments, we have to keep defined benefits. Do you think that there is um, a realization among the people who are, who are saying, we need to change, change, change now, that maybe now is the, the time to change? I'm hoping. Because, because you talk about workforce challenge, State, state government has workforce challenges. Every government has workforce challenges. So this really affects public and private equally. And I, I think cha major changes in benefits right now would be catastrophic. Now what about the pay plan? I've been hearing some changes to the pay plan, but again, this all falls back. The, the March revenue forecast will come out and mm -hmm. that, will, that will drive a lot of decisions, mm -hmm. but it seems to be more generous than it's been in the past for state workers. It has, but yet the contracts, traditionally state workers got the same cost of living as public, as the contract for, for long-term care or for other, other entities. And in this governor's budget, they're not the same. State employees got more than all the, the kind of budgets things. So I think there's a lot of moving parts in the budget. <laughs> I think you're probably right, but again, this, this March revenue forecast we'll, we'll is, is gonna really Tell a lot of tales. Well, and I thought the December budget uh, revenue forecast was more generous than we thought it was going to be. And so, and I think right now the economy is more stable than it was even in December. And that's good. That's good. Forward. Yeah. But of course, oil and agriculture are both very volatile at this point. They're, everything's volatile. <laughs> the whole world is pretty volatile. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, I wanted to ask you, because I've, I've asked other guests too, is there something that you're focusing on that we haven't talked about that might be a kind of a hidden gem to watch? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think we're so focused on workforce and child care. I think all of the kind of um, bills that are 
almost culture war bills, the transgender bills, the kind of library bills, are almost distractions from the heart of what we do. And I think sometimes we forget that what we really are about is looking at the common good. And those really aren't about the common good. Did it surprise you the number of these transgender or social issue bills that have come in this session? I've been shocked. I've been shocked. And I think, I think the realities of it are we want to invite people and make them feel welcome. We are frightening people. And it's terrifying to me. Well, I haven't asked this question of anybody else, but I'm going to ask it of you. Would, would these have the unintended consequences of maybe scaring away a potential workforce? Absolutely, this will. This will. In fact, I was at a meeting where I, two transgender people were saying they're looking at moving out of state because of the bills. They, because personally, they feel threatened. And it's very, very um, hurtful to individuals and to their families. So this is going to be another one of those issues we're going to have to watch through most of the session. Most of the session. I did wanted to ask about a couple, couple of relatively minor things. One is this idea of taking the trigger off the oil tax. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Oh. <laughs> well, that, that's, that, that's being pushed in the House Committee. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting idea, uh, you know, because remember when the trigger was the other opposite of what it is now. And so that's an interesting idea. If we raised the oil tax, I'd probably do that. <laughs> but I remember when it went from what? 11 and a half to 10%. 10% and then, and then we went with the trigger with back the, to 11. Exactly, so we just switched it around. And what about this idea of carbon sequestration, the, the carbon capture, the carbon pipelines that are coming through? I, you know, I have major concerns about the safety of all of this innovation because we are really the center of the experiment about carbon capture. Nobody else is doing it quite like we're doing it. And I think there are risks, and I think we need to assure that property landowners have rights protected. I'm concerned about the eminent domain bill. I'm concerned about safety. And I think historically we have not been a regulated state. And I think carbon sequestration has real risks. Okay, something to watch. We got about 20 seconds left. Here's the question I ask everybody. When do you adjourn? Oh, day 78. You're saying 78. You're a little bit less optimistic than some of your other. <laughs> I've heard 75, 76. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you for thank being here, Kathy. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Our guest today on Legislative Review, Senator Kathy from Fargo. She is the Senate Minority Leader. For Prairie Public and Legislative Review, I'm Dave Thompson.